right, well, we will be in Matthew 12. Uh, and real quick, as you know, as Roger said, as, as things have been leading up to this, there's just a lot going on today, a lot of moving parts. We have communion, the discipleship hour. Uh, we have the Father's meeting, all of our normal stuff, the, the services. And as I've said before, uh, success is measured not by results, but by faithfulness, okay? Uh, if you've been a part of uh, some denominations or missions group, it's all about how many baptisms, how many confessions, that's success, um, which means that Jeremiah was a failure. Uh, that's not biblical success. Success is just faithfulness. And uh, for the past number of months, a lot of faithfulness, a lot of commitment has gone into making this happen, you know, especially from people like Margaret and Angela, Roger and Evan, uh, my mother, and just a host of, of others. And, uh, and also today, we're going to have some 24 people teaching the Word of God and a total of about 100 hands on deck doing something uh, to make all of this happen uh, for the edification of the body. And, uh, and over the course of this next month or so, about 50% of this fellowship will be actively serving or have served. It's pretty amazing. Okay, yeah. So serving throughout this, you know, this transition, trying to make it just all work for the edification of our church family, okay? Um, and I've been told, I'm going to tell you now, and I'm going to tell you after the service, um, if you have children <clears throat> who are in children's church right now, please do not linger very long after this service, okay? Promptly uh, scoot out of here, check your children out, and then check them into their appropriate class for the discipleship hour, okay? I'll tell you twice, okay? Uh, you'll have time to linger in fellowship after the discipleship hour. Uh, all right, so quickly in review, and then I have a couple other things to put out before we pray, but <clears throat> as you know, our chapter, uh, chapter 12, began with a, uh, a dispute regarding the Sabbath, and what we saw was the Pharisees <clears throat> were appealing to their traditions in order to condemn the apostles for harvesting a handful of grain in order to satisfy their hunger. And then they were condemning Jesus according to their traditions for healing on the Sabbath. And then following this controversy, the Pharisees then uh, moved to blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Okay? And all of these controversies, uh, systematically, Jesus demonstrated just the unbiblical, uh, illogical, hypocritical, and eternally dangerous folly of the Pharisees. I mean, in his grace, he, he's, he's just warning them. He's, he, he's trying to, to get them to see who he is and all of that, but they just keep pushing it until they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's become, it, we, they've now entered into the realm of eternal consequences. And then this led into our, uh, our conversation last week about how a tree is known for its fruit, just as the heart of a person is known by what comes out of their mouth. And of course, it's demonstrated by their actions. Jesus makes it very clear that our, our words matter, and they will determine whether or not we're going to be justified or condemned on the day of judgment. Now, as the chapter continues, uh, the Pharisees who, um, you know, like Tom and Jerry, Tom just never gives up. 
okay? He just takes a beating and, I don't know, he dies sometimes in the cartoons, doesn't he? He has to. I mean, he gets blown up and everything else, but just persistently, you know, after Jerry, and these guys are the same with Jesus, and, uh, but Jesus continues to turn it back on them, uh, but also upon the unbelieving people in the audience. Uh, so let's just continue on with this. We'll finish the chapter today, I believe. And uh, so if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew 12, 38 through 50. <clears throat> and as we pray, wanted to uh, remember we have a lot of sick people. Uh, you know Paul and Felicia and little Maddie. Uh, Emily Howard is also sick. Many others. Uh, my, one of my, well, two of my sons are home today. Uh, one of them is definitely sicker than the other. And uh, also... We've been praying for Phyllis and, uh, and her daughter, Phyllis and Mike's daughter. Phyllis is coming home next week. And uh, the daughter has an apartment and a nanny, uh, but we need to continue to pray for Maria's health. So let's do that now. All right. Well, Father, so many sick people. Um, seems like the, the, the fall cold and flu season uh, is becoming a larger season. And... Um, it's definitely gone through my house in the last two weeks, and, and other people are just feeling lousy. Lord, we do pray that you would just be with them, watch after them. Pray that you'd protect them from infection, and that you would bring them back to us soon, Lord, and doing well. Look after them all, we pray. Lord, thank you that uh, Phyllis is coming home, and, uh, <clears throat> and thank you for the answered prayer with the apartment and, uh, and the Maria has this nanny to help her with this newborn. We pray, Lord, that you'd continue to be with Maria. Uh, Lord, all of these unknowns with her body. Pray that you'd minister to her heart and to her physical health, Lord. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would continue to abide with us as we look into your word. Um, encourage us, we pray. Teach us. And as always, just conform us, Lord, into your image. We thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, go ahead and be seated. Mm. Stand back up. You see, you mess up my routine. But I did that, didn't I? It's always easier to blame somebody else. <clears throat> Verse 38. Then, there's a lot of this, then. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment. The queen of the south is the queen of Sheba on the southern end of the Arabian desert. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. So 
shall it also be with this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Go ahead and be seated. (laughs) All right, well, some fun stuff in the text. Again, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Again, the Pharisees coming to Jesus, but not, not with a legitimate question. Of course, they're trying to set him up for failure so they can you know, humiliate him in front of all the people, just as they had tried to do in the synagogue when they brought the man with the withered hand to him. And as we consider this, this bogus request, we need to keep in mind all of the miracles Jesus performed in the presence of the Pharisees up to this point, okay? As recorded in Matthew's gospel, the first recorded miracle was the healing of the leper in chapter eight. This, you guys, this was a a significant miracle. Uh, The only other Jew to be healed of leprosy was Miriam some 1400 years earlier, and she was healed by God himself. Jesus' healing of the leper was what we might call a sign miracle. It was to demonstrate who he was, and it was to validate his ministry. And it was so important, this miracle of healing the leper, that he told the leper, now go and show yourself to the priests as a testimony to them, as a witness to them. What do you think a witness of? The Messiah was, he was at hand. He was there. And then Jesus healed the paralytic to demonstrate that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That was a sign miracle right there in front of the Pharisees. And then more recently in the narrative, Jesus, he drove this demon out of a man and by doing so it restored his sight and his speech. And then Jesus said something very interesting to the Pharisees. He says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a sign miracle. It's a sign right in the presence of the Pharisees. So when they came to Jesus as a teacher, we want to see a sign from you. (laughs) They were saying that every miracle that Jesus had performed up to this point was illegitimate. Not that they could perform any of them, but because it was Jesus doing them, they were illegitimate. And if he performed a sign to their liking, if they had said, hey, well, if you would do this, we would be satisfied, and then he did it, they would say, well, you did it by the power of Satan, as they've done twice now to Jesus. And so no matter what sign Jesus gave them, they would only scrutinize it. They would call it satanic and illegitimate. But Jesus knew that they were insincere. So he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, Jesus wasn't about to accommodate the Pharisees. And we know from the scriptures that he resists the proud and the arrogant, but he, he extends his grace to the humble. They're not going to get anything but condemnation. And Jesus wasn't going to provide the sign of Jonah because they were asking for a sign. Jesus was going to 
provide the sign of Jonah no matter what, right? Because his father had sent him to perform, to provide this sign to the world. But here, Jesus initially responds to the Pharisees with a rebuke. He calls them evil, not just the Pharisees, but the whole generation of Israel at that time, uh, said they're evil and adulterous. You know, just leave it to the judge of all the earth to say it like it is. Evil and adulterous. Okay? Evil is often translated as wicked. Of course, he's referring to their, you know, their motives regarding him, their religious hypocrisy, their self-interest, their commitment to rabbinic tradition rather than the scriptures, and of course, their lack of mercy and compassion. Now, the mention of, of adultery is a little different. Um, this is actually an ancient accusation against the people of Israel. It's not a reference to the physical act of adultery. He's not accusing them of committing adultery against their spouses. He's pointing out their spiritual adultery against God. In the Old Testament, this accusation addressed the people of Israel's tendency to go after pagan idols, and God called that adultery. It was idolatry, but there's an unfaithfulness in it Uh, against God. In spiritual terms, God as husband looked upon Israel as a wife that was unfaithful, who constantly committed what the Old Testament calls harlotry with demons, and not with one or two. But it came to a point where it was as many as they could get their hands on. They would just fall headlong into idolatry. If you've read the book of Hosea, uh, you can see that that truth is illustrated very well. God's loyalty, Israel's unfaithfulness. In fact, it's, I think it's one of the most disturbing books in the Old Testament. God told Hosea to take a prostitute to be his wife, of course, to illustrate his relationship with Israel. And though he loved her, she continued to go back to her lovers. And so Israel then is called this spiritual prostitute and unfaithful wife clinging to her lovers, her idols. And Jesus brings up this ancient accusation of God and he throws it back out on Israel. But the thing is, is that during uh, Jesus's time in Israel, Israel wasn't entertaining pagan idols like they were in the Old Testament. Things were different, but they're not in a way. Israel had essentially forsaken God for a new religion it was the religion of rabbinical tradition, okay, or uh, rabbinical Judaism. They had interpreted the scriptures in such a way that the love and mercy and compassion of God were eclipsed by rigid conformity to an ungodly interpretation of God's word, which then bred a cold self-righteousness, a cold self-righteousness. And when the rigid mechanics of self-righteous religion dominated their thinking, the worshiper was depleted of their love and mercy and compassion, which was evident when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. The Pharisees, they felt no pity for the man. The only thing they could see was a violation of the Sabbath, at least the way that they had twisted what it is to keep the Sabbath. And you see, when when that kind of religion is the predominant feature in a society, the whole culture falls in step with the the coldness of its philosophy, self-righteousness, free of compassion. And that was a complete departure from the heart of God. 
That is spiritual adultery. The Jews had become unfaithful to God by going after this perverted religion called rabbinical Judaism. And to that evil and adulterous generation, Jesus says, you'll only receive the sign of the son of Jonah, whatever that is. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as a side note, what does this tell us that Jesus believed about Jonah? He was a real person who was swallowed by a really big fish. Yeah. And uh, you can Google on your own time how many people in history have been swallowed by fish, uh, large fish, and have been in their bellies for days and survived. And you can read the documents of what they look like when they came out. (laughs) If you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, I think that you should go read it. It's not a very long book. Uh, If you'd like to hear a good presentation on the book, uh, Mike Strobach taught through the book not long ago. Uh, That's on our website. I think it would be prudent to just do an abbreviated review with you. Jonah, we know, was called by God to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to the Assyrians. We've been talking about the Assyrians on Thursday night. Uh, They've just come to their demise in the book of Isaiah. Well, the problem for Jonah is that he hated the Assyrians. And he knew that God would forgive them if they repented. And he must have thought, if I don't go to Nineveh and preach repentance, they won't repent, and then God will have to annihilate them. So he got on a boat that was headed in the opposite direction of Nineveh to an unknown place called Tarshish. But while at sea, God caused a storm to begin to rage, and by some interesting means, the crew discovered that Jonah was the reason for it. And eventually, Jonah succeeded at convincing the crew to throw him overboard. Not what I have done, uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't want to be on a boat at sea either. I don't fare well unless the boat is extremely large. When they threw Jonah out of the boat, the sea was calm, and then a big fish swallowed him. <laughs> And God preserved Jonah's life for three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. And after the third day, the fish puked him out on the beach facing Nineveh. Fun times, huh? This event from the past, real person, real event, God was using it to look forward to Jesus, even though there are some huge differences, okay, between Jonah and Jesus. For example, Jesus loved the people of Israel. Jonah hated the Assyrians. Jesus wanted, he longed for the people of Israel to repent. Jonah didn't want the Assyrians to repent. Jesus did all those things that pleased his father. He always obeyed his father. Jonah was in rebellion to the father. Jesus willingly went to the people of Israel. Jonah, not so much to the Assyrians. When someone repented, Jesus rejoiced. When the Assyrians repented, Jonah was angry, angry. And when any of the Jews failed to repent, Jesus wept. He wept over Jerusalem. Jonah would have clicked his heels. Of course, Jesus went to his death willingly. Jonah just got swallowed. Yeah. But the sign here is what's important. Just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, Jesus would be in the grave 
for three days and three nights after the crucifixion. And then similar to Jonah, Jesus would emerge, but Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Okay, people that are crucified don't live. Okay, he died and then he rose. The sign that would be witnessed by this evil and adulterous generation would be Jesus' atoning death and his resurrection. In fact, this evil and adulterous generation would play a key role in bringing to pass the sign of Jonah. They would deliver their Messiah, the Son of God, over to death. They would assist in bringing the sign to to pass, but in all the wrong ways. The sign of the prophet Jonah, you guys, was the sign of signs. It was the sign of signs. It was the great miracle, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that declared Jesus to be the Son of God. How would you like to participate in bringing that to pass, only to realize that you were instrumental in killing the Son of God? Just crazy. But to the masses, this would just end up being no sign at all. They wanted a sign. They got the sign of signs, and they still rejected the Son of God. Crazy. So please listen careful. Miracles, though much power is required to perform them, that same power often has little effect on the human heart for repentance. People are chasers of signs, just like the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm not sure it's a good thing. You know, miracles were not that impressive to Pharaoh. He never repented. God drowned him in the Red Sea. Miracles were not that impressive to the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. Very few of them repented, and all of the others perished in the desert because of unrepentance. Miracles did not dissuade Achan from stealing the forbidden treasures of Jericho, and then he was stoned to death for it. Miracles didn't help Israel be faithful during the time of the judges. The prophets performed miracles in the presence of kings and in the presence of the people, but repentance was rare. You know, signs and wonders are often the very thing that justify the condemnation of those who witness them. It's crazy in the scriptures. Those who witness a sign are held to higher accountability. And I believe that people that ask for a sign from God should be careful for what they ask for. You know, I, I frequently seek God's direction, um, his wisdom. I'm told to, James chapter 1. But I'll tell you, there's something I've never done. And it's because of looking at the scriptures that I don't ask for signs. If, if signs and wonders follow, as Jesus said they would, in certain circumstances, great. That's something he initiates. I don't want to ask for it. Okay? I don't really see the benefit. Of course, I want to know God's word so I can understand his will for my life, so I can understand his heart in various matters of life. I want to experience his grace, his kindness. I'm not really interested in signs. I'm rather concerned about a person's motive and the condition of their heart when they seek after signs. As you look through the scriptures, those who ask for them usually do it out of unbelief, like Moses and Gideon or from evil motives like the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you remember the arrogant words of Pharaoh um, when Moses came to him? He says, who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? Dude was asking for a sign, and he got 10 of them. He got 10 of them, and then he perished. So, you know, it's better when God just, on his own accord, initiates a sign than for us to seek after one. We should seek after God, and we should be satisfied with him. If he grants a sign, we should appreciate it for what it is, but I don't believe we should go chasing after them. I don't think there's any good in it. 
I think that they're a distraction. And if you pay attention to the signs and wonders movements uh, that have swept through our nation uh, over the last um, about 120 years now, um, it has just gotten crazy, okay? And Jesus has been lost in the mix. So let's keep the main thing. Uh, the Father wanted to make Christ give him the preeminence in all things. And so let's not make miracles uh, anything special. Amen? All right. So Jesus now moves to condemnation mode. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Boy, these guys are just getting it, aren't they? Man. So someone, as Jesus is saying here, far greater than the prophet Jonah, exceeding even the greatness of Solomon, and early here he said, even greater than the temple, was sent to Israel, and you've rejected him. And he says, because of this, the pagan men of Nineveh, they repented at Jonah's preaching. The pagan queen of Sheba traveled afar to hear Solomon's wisdom, but this evil and adulterous generation of Jews is going to turn Jesus over to crucifixion. The, the father sent his son to them. Uh, what, what better person to communicate the truths of God but then to turn him over to the cross? God gave his best, but Israel gave God their worst. Therefore, that generation of Jews is going to be condemned by the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba on the day of judgment. What a terrible thing when God allows pagans to condemn his own people. What does that say about his people, that generation? Let's continue with Jesus' condemnation of these people and their leaders. This seems to be unconnected from the, uh, the discussion until you get to the last verse of the section. He says, when an unclean spirit <clears throat> goes out of a man, he goes through dry places. Only Jesus could know this. Seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. It's all tied together. So very interesting. This illustration is a comparison between the nation of Israel and a man who had formerly been delivered from a demon, but was then later repossessed by eight demons. Okay? Let me tell you what I believe the gist of all of this is. You know, demons don't go out of a man unless they've been forced out by a power superior to themselves, as Jesus demonstrated in verse 29. And we know that during a demon's occupancy in a person, as we've read through the Gospels, they create all kinds of disorder and chaos. The person is in a very bad way because of the demon. But when a superior power forces them out, like Jesus, the person then regains their sanity, at least as much as an uh, unredeemed person can have in their sanity. They, they sort of get their life back. But it doesn't mean that the removal of a demon then makes them saved. They've just been delivered by demonic occupation. 
And so the evicted demon leaves and he goes over dry places. I assume he's looking for another home. If he fails to secure one, it returns to its former host. If the host is empty, meaning there's no one of superior power dwelling in him, the demon enters once again. And when he does, he finds the place clean. It's, it's in order. The person is a normal person. But instead of just taking up residence again, Jesus says he takes with him seven more demons who are more wicked than himself. I assume that he, he's hoping uh, in like strength in numbers that you know, next time it'll be harder to perhaps kick me out of this place. And Jesus says, because there are more demons than before and more wicked demons, the man is worse than he was before. We, we saw something like this with the, uh, the demoniac of Gadara who was hosting a legion of demons, you know, six, upwards of 6,000. And was he a wreck? The guy was messed up, okay? And the whole community was afraid of him because of how dangerous he had become. So what's the point? The point that Jesus is making is that by his presence and his authority, his kingdom, Israel had experienced some relief from Satan's dominion. But if Israel does not receive him, Satan's dominion will be restored sevenfold, and the latter state of Israel's spiritual and moral condition will be worse than before. You push out the Son of God, and there are serious consequences. Israel was playing with fire as they were challenging and disbelieving and rejecting Jesus. And so according to the hardness of their hearts and their unbelief, Paul says in Romans 11 that God has inflicted partial blindness upon them. They are under divine chastisement because of the rejection of Christ. You guys, they had Jesus at their fingertips. Imagine that, walking among them, teaching, doing miracles. He was at their fingertips and they rejected him. But it's really no different today because in the place of Christ is who? He says, I will not leave you orphans. Today we have the Holy Spirit And so the gospel is at our fingertips. So today, as Paul says, is the day to respond to the gospel. Today's the day to repent and trust in Jesus, lest your latter condition be worse than before. When the gospel is presented to the heart, it should respond. It should respond. Because every time it's pushed away, their life is just turned over more and more to danger. Real quick, before I move on, I need to say something else regarding the issue of demon possession because it comes up in conversation quite a bit. Some people insist, um, without biblical evidence, that Christians can be demon-possessed. I hear this a lot. And instead of uh, providing examples of believers in the scriptures who who are possessed as believers, people give examples from their own experience. They believe this to be true because of their experience. Well, Our experience must always be held in question if it does not align itself with the text of the Bible. And there are no examples in the scriptures where a born-again believer was possessed after they came to faith, okay? The reason a demon is able to re-enter a former host, or anyone at all, is because the Holy Spirit has not taken up residence there, okay? That's why. He re-enters because he finds the place, what? Empty, empty. If the demon returned and found the Holy Spirit residing in the person, it wouldn't have been empty, and the demon would not have been welcome. And there's no way 
that he can force himself through the door past the Holy Spirit, who is the superior power, okay? The redeemed person is the property of Jesus Christ. So this is my point. The Holy Spirit will not be roommates with a demon. And no demon is stupid enough to try and room with the Holy Spirit. The demon knows that every intruder will be shot and then composted in the backyard, okay? That's just the facts. Listen, on planet Earth, the body of a Christian is the most hostile environment for a demon because of the Holy Spirit. He will not tread there, okay? Paul says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but in the Greek, there's, there's two words regarding the temple. There's the huron, which is the temple complex, where even the Gentiles can kind of linger. But G, or Paul doesn't use the word huron. He uses naos, which means the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, the very dwelling place of God. God does not entertain demons there, okay? He doesn't do that. Demonic forces may tamper with a believer's life and affect their circumstances. He may harass them, but they do not dare try and possess a believer and take control of them. Therefore, no believers cannot be possessed, and therefore, no believer can say that the devil made me do it, okay? (laughs) He didn't. But if you are not saved and the Holy Spirit does not reside in you, you are vulnerable to anything, okay? You are, you're, you're, you're like open range, you know? Do they have that in Washington? Okay. I, when I was in the military, my roommate, he, we were talking about something, and I was telling him I was on the way to some place, but I got on a highway, and uh, the highway was covered with sheep. And he says, that's not real. And then he came home with me on vacation, and uh, we were going somewhere, and we got stopped up because there was cattle in the road. Yeah, uh, it's all over the place. And men on horseback are driving them. I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, open range, it's free for all. Yeah, Jesus says that the thief, referring to Satan, came to, to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give you life. So give him yours, give him yours. Let's finish the chapter. Watching that clock, everything's different now. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother, your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Now, in the next chapter, Jesus' sisters will be mentioned. And for some of you, that's a surprise. Jesus had brothers and sisters. His brothers were James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, not, not his disciples. These are common names in Israel, okay? The names of his sisters, though, are never given. Uh, these are, of course, his younger half-siblings, not his step-siblings. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had a number of children, at least seven in all, five boys and at least two girls, okay? Now, Catholic tradition on this subject, which is nothing more than legend for the sake of protecting the false history of Mary's perpetual virginity, and that these other siblings of Jesus were from Joseph's previous marriage. Listen, it's not worth considering. No apostle, none of the earliest fathers believed any of that stuff. Matthew 1 makes it clear that after Jesus was born and Mary completed her 40 days of purification, Joseph and Mary did what married people do, okay? They had sexual intercourse, Okay, like any healthy marriage 
should and has the responsibility to, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. So just because a tradition exists doesn't mean that it should be considered. Anyone can make up anything they like. It doesn't mean that any of us should pay attention, okay? Sola Scriptura, the scriptures alone are the authority, okay? Uh, Tradition should always be held in question. But Jesus answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't like dismissing, denying his relationship to his biological family. He's just pointing out the reality of his new and growing spiritual family. Those who do the will of the Father are his spiritual relatives. John says that through faith, Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. Now, all human beings are creations of God, but only those who trust in Christ are his children. Okay, you can't become something you already are. Jesus gives us the right to become the children of God, John 1.12. Through faith, we are adopted into the family of God. We become the permanent residence of God's eternal home, Ephesians 1.5. So God becomes our father and Christ our brother through faith. And then you guys, well, you're my mother, my brothers and my sisters, which is nice. I didn't have any sisters growing up. But now I got a bunch of sisters. Yeah, this is great. So thank you for being my family. Amen. And it seems to be growing of late. I like it. Yeah. All right. I told you that I would tell you twice. Before I pray, remember parents with children in our children's church, please don't linger here very long at all. Okay? When I pray, please just, and nobody's going to think you're rude because I've told you this. Just scoot over, grab your kids. Check them into their next class, and uh, let's get into this discipleship hour stuff. Amen? All right, go ahead and stand up, and we'll pray. We're hurrying here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sign of the prophet Jonah that the, the greater reality of it was that you went to Calvary, and you didn't go there empty handed. You went there with all of our sin and our guilt, and then you were punished for what we did wrong. And then you died. And then as Paul says in Romans 4.25, you rose for our justification. Lord, we thank you for the completed work of Calvary. You rose victoriously. And just as you rose, we will rise as well. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.